Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Anthropology podcast, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Ivan Small about his book, Currencies of Imagination, Channeling Money and Chasing Mobility in Vietnam, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Overseas Vietnamese are estimated to remit $15 billion U.S. dollars annually to family that remains in Vietnam. Ivan Small moves beyond the numbers to examine how remittances affect sociality and human relations. Dr. Small is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at Central Connecticut State University. Ivan Small, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Reagan. Great to be here. Um, So can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, training, and how you came to write the book? What sparked your interest in this topic? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of anthropology and international studies at Central Connecticut State University. Um, and I've been here for about six years. And I, uh, <clears throat> quite a long time ago, I did a master's in international affairs uh, at Columbia University, focusing on economic and political development. Um, it was kind of an, an applied master's program. And I was thinking about uh, working in the field of international development. Um, but along the way, I, I got interested in uh, continuing my studies and doing a PhD. Um, so after finishing my master's, I worked for a couple of years in New York at the Ford Foundation. And, uh, and then I had an opportunity to travel to Vietnam. And uh, during that time, I was kind of thinking about possible uh, topics for uh, proposing a, a dissertation um, in Southeast Asian studies. I was interested in, in at that time in uh, doing a PhD that would allow me to um, travel to Southeast Asia and do research there. I did my master's research in Thailand. Um, and I had also been traveling a lot to Vietnam over the years. My, um, I'm half Vietnamese, and so I slowly gained an interest in understanding that country um, as things started to open up there. Um, and so in 2003, I traveled to Vietnam, uh, partly to look for uh, topics that would be of interest uh, for an eventual dissertation, um, but p- partly also on a family visit. Uh, my grandmother came, she's Vietnamese, she came to the U.S. as a refugee in 1980, um, and she didn't necessarily come because she wanted to, but at that time, uh, things were very tough in Vietnam, and so she, um, after the war, and so she she came here as a refugee, and you know, for many years, she lived in New Jersey, and when she was discontent uh, with life there, she would often say she wanted to go back to Vietnam. And uh, so, as she was getting older, um, she was living with my parents, and they were trying to think about what, you know, how to take care of her as she got older, and um, you know whether she, you know, a nursing home might be a, a good place uh, for her. But there's a lot of challenges to that because she doesn't speak English. She didn't speak English. Um, and so when I went to Vietnam, they asked me to take her along and see if 
she might want to return there now that things were a lot better um, economically. And so I did that. I took her uh, to um, Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, where she had some relatives. And we uh, then connected to a whole network of other relatives um, on the side of you know my own explorations there. And uh, in the process, I, I learned that I had quite a large extended family in Vietnam that I had not known about growing up. Um, but I also um, was tasked as part of this process of reconnecting her with relatives uh, with distributing quite a lot of money um, to help support uh, her, uh, her, her time there. Um, and so I got to see some firsthand some of the tensions that were involved in that. I got to learn a lot of stories about my uh, grandmother, about my mother uh, that I had never known before. Um, each time that I visited family, I would distribute money, but also distribute photographs and uh, letters. And I realized that there was a whole social dimension to this process of remittances. And so um, having studied international economic development, uh, remittances were a topic of interest in that field. Um, remittances were uh, something that were uh, that that gained a lot of interest after 9-11 um, because there was governments were interested in cross-border terrorist financing, but along with that interest came a recognition that uh, migrants were sending large amounts of money back to their home countries and that this was playing an important development role. Um, but as I started to kind of see that in person, I realized that there's not only an economic dimension, but also a social dimension. And so that led me to start thinking about um, this experience that I was having as itself a possible uh, eventual dissertation topic that I could study not only from an economic perspective, but also from a, a more social one. And that eventually led me to um, apply for and pursue a PhD in anthropology. So the book focuses on remittances um, or money, goods, ideas that overseas Vietnamese send back to their families in Vietnam. And you conceptualize remittances through theories of the gift. And so, of course, one of the most well-known theorists of the gift for anthropologists is Marcel Mose. Um, can you explain the idea of the Mosean gift? In the book, you bring together ideas of the Mosean gift as well as other theories of gifting. Um, to, and you also talk about the specificity of gifting for Vietnamese. Um, can you also talk about the um, specificity of gifting in, in Vietnamese culture as well? Sure. Um, so, yeah, Marcel Mauss uh, wrote The Gift in 1924. Um, it's become a kind of classic in anthropology, but also the social sciences and humanities more broadly. Um, and he wrote it at a time when there was a lot of concern uh, in Europe about the excesses of capitalism, um, as well as competition and empire uh, that had led to World War I. Um, and so in the book, he tries to draw on this gift concept as something that is universal um, across different human cultures, but um, has in many cases been forgotten in the West. And so he creates this kind of uh, heuristic category of the gift that's separated from, uh, from money as something that is more altruistic, that uh, mediates human relationships, and therefore is something that we should perhaps cultivate, um, that needed to be cultivated uh, in, in Europe. Um, and so he has a, um, you know, kind of a, a crude universal definition of the gift as uh, something um, that creates obligations to give, receive, and reciprocate. 
Um, and he also talks a lot about a particular concept of um, called the Hal from Polynesia, meaning that the gift has a spirit which drives its circulation. Um, Marcel Mauss, however, was an armchair anthropologist, and so he was not directly going out and doing the research himself, but he was rather drawing on ethnologies done by others, sometimes by anthropologists, sometimes by uh, missionaries or traders. Um, and so, you know, all of his sources are secondary, and in many cases, his references are actually in the third or fourth degree. So as part of my book, um, I actually had a fun time chasing down some of the references that he makes uh, in the book because I was interested in all the different kind of uh, um, uh, case studies that he presents. Um, and one of them actually mentions Vietnam. He says um, that there was a, uh, a an animite morality. There's a, uh, a fear of gifting and Anam is the old name for Vietnam. And so I was like, you know, that's kind of interesting that he talks about this fear of gifting. Where does he get that from? And so I actually chased down some of the sources um, and uh, and be, and understood the context of it being that uh, at the time, French traders were trying to make inroads into some of the Vietnamese communities and they would bring gifts, um, which were not always welcome. There was, a, of course, an air of suspicion about what these, what these French traders um, were doing trying to get at. And of course, this was in the period of, you know, French colonization. Uh, so it was interesting to, to trace that. Um, but what's apparent in Moses' um, analysis of the gift is that the only thing that unifies uh, the different categories that he presents, and he's got such a range going from uh, um, Kula gifting circles in the Torbrian Islands to uh, to potlatch giving um, attached to credit and honor and rivalry in the North American Pacific Northwest um, is that the gift itself is this category that's produced um, by Marcel Mauss. And there's a lot of messiness uh, in all these ethnological accounts that he is trying to then uh, take out in trying to, in trying to define this category of the gift. And so I think this idea of the gift itself has kind of taken on a life of its own. There's this you know, genealogy of analysts that have since uh, tried to um, run with this concept of the gift. But if you actually look at the gift ethnologies that he is describing, there's a fair amount of messiness in their description. And, uh, and I think in reality, that's the kind of messiness that I experienced ethnographically when I was studying remittances in Vietnam. There's a lot of different ideas about what these remittances mean. Um, there's a kind of, you know, a hopeful idealism that by exchanging remittances that kinship relationships can be restored, um, especially in situations where uh, they were disrupted for almost a generation uh, of refugee exile. Um, and yet there's a lot of frustrations in that process. Um, so <clears throat> I think the category, the production of the category itself by Western analysts is something interesting to think about. Um, and when it comes to remittances, well, in the case of Vietnam, they are serving as gifts, but they're also serving as money. Um, and that gets into a complicated realm of, uh, of reflections by the people that I interviewed about 
what exactly um, is the origin of the gift, what is the meaning of the gift, and what is the um, anticipation of what the gift can achieve uh, uh, over the long term. Um, so, you know, in Vietnam, gifting is certainly quite ubiquitous, and it lubricates all kinds of social and kinship relations. Um, and there are actually different verbs that are used in the Vietnamese language to distinguish what kind of giving uh, is happening. There's a, a, a word for kind of a formalized uh, giving of a gift, and there's a kind of more everyday word that's used for uh, uh, situations where, you know, it's not, um, where, where that kind of gifting etiquette is not a part of the presentation. Um, but it's certainly the case that um, gifting etiquette is paramount and ideas of generosity are something that are considered to be very important in, in Vietnamese culture. Um, and people talked a lot about this idea of generosity. Uh, people would talk about um, the limitations on generosity as well in that uh, they felt that in Vietnam, because of the hardship experienced during the war and after the war, um, uh, you know, especially when Vietnam was embargoed uh, by the United States and other Western countries, that uh, it was very difficult to be generous to others. And, um, and so therefore, this kind of traditional idea of, of gifting uh, was disrupted. And um, this itself uh, often led people to think about the, um, the, 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 about their desires for migration and that people would say, I can be a better Vietnamese living in another place because there I can have more economic opportunity and I can therefore cultivate this generosity that I, that I really can't cultivate here when I'm just dealing with, you know, kind of day-to-day -day survival. It's estimated that 2.1 million Vietnamese live in the United States with um, about 39% of the population living in California. And so what was the catalyzing event for Vietnamese migration? And then um, like what forms do, do remittances take? And, and what do people do with these remittances in, in Vietnam? So uh, Vietnam was um, divided uh, during the Cold War into two countries, the Republic of Vietnam and the, and the Socialist um, Republic of Vietnam, and people usually call it North and South Vietnam. Uh, and there was a civil war that continued for almost a generation between uh, the two sides. The North was communist, the South was uh, um, allied with the United States, North was allied with the Soviet Union and China. Um, and so it was a civil war that also got exacerbated by, uh, you know, by the Cold War and, and other superpowers intervening. <clears throat> um, and in 1973, the U.S. pulled its support uh, from South Vietnam. And uh, by 1975, uh, the Republic of Vietnam uh, was no longer viable. It fell in April uh, 1975. And um, this basically was the beginning of a, of a long refugee exodus. Uh, there was an initial wave of high government officials um, that had worked for the uh, South Vietnamese government or the Saigon, um, that, that was based in Saigon, that were airlifted out of Vietnam in the immediate days um, preceding the fall of uh, that country. Um, and then, you know, after the country was reunified, it was renamed the, um, the, the, uh, Socialist Republic of, of Vietnam. I'm sorry, the, the prior name for North Vietnam was the Democratic, uh, Republic of Vietnam. And then after the country was reunified, it was then called the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Um, 
And, uh, you know, that led to um, a lot of difficult conditions, especially for people in the South. Uh, there were re-education camps for um, officials that had supported the Southern government. Um, Vietnam was also embargoed by the United States, and so it made, made it very difficult uh, for them to import things into the economy. Um, there was also an ex experimentation with uh, command economy uh, models in which um, uh, private ownership of um, production was abolished, and this led to a lot of food shortages. Uh, so things were quite difficult, and uh, people started to leave the country um, around 1977, and uh, this really led to a, almost a generation-long exodus um, of refugees, uh, largely by um, starting by boat. Uh, and you start to... Um, you know, have people getting on small fishing boats and trying to get to other to refugee camps in other Southeast Asian countries, typically paying about three gold bars to do so. Um, there they would be processed and then resettled uh, in third countries such as the U.S., uh, Canada, Australia, France, and others um, for permanent resettlement. Um, and so this continues until... Um, uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, 1989, the UN UNHCR decides to um, have a comprehensive uh, action plan to close down uh, the refugee camps and either process the ones that were in the camps for resettlement uh, or send um, those who are not considered to be refugees back to Vietnam. Because at that time, there was, uh, it seemed that a lot of the uh, arrival arrivals were economic migrants rather than uh, political refugees. Um, and so, you know, during this time period, uh, it was very difficult to, um, to connect with Vietnam for refugees that made it to other countries. Uh, there were no, uh, diplomatic or economic relations between the U S and Vietnam. And so Vietnamese, uh, who had made it to the U S for example, were quite concerned about the conditions back in their homeland for, uh, their family members who were still there. And so, because there were no banking channels uh, or financial channels, they would um, put together boxes of things that they could send to their families. Uh, and so these boxes would have, um, <clears throat> you know, electronic items or, you know, ballpoint pens or all kinds of things that basically people couldn't get in Vietnam. And family members would uh, go to the airport or to the local people's committee um, to receive these things, uh, oftentimes losing quite a cut, losing a cut uh, from cadres in the process. Um, and then they would try to sell those material things on the black market for, you know, basic everyday foodstuffs and things they needed to survive. So, you know, the, the period of time where people couldn't return to Vietnam, the material things that, that were sent were a lifeline. And they also, um, created a placeholder for family members that uh, were unable to return. In the 1990s, you start to see this changing. Uh, financial channels start to open up. Um, uh, 1995, the U.S. restores diplomatic relations with Vietnam under Clinton. And, uh, and you start to see other forms of remittance channels. And yet this long period of material remittances um, really kind of defined in many ways uh, those 
those transnational kinship relations. And so those material remittances continue today and that when Vietnamese uh, diasporic Vietnamese come back to Vietnam, they continue to bring big boxes of things that they distribute then to their families. A lot of these things are now kept by the family and used, but some of those things continue to be sold uh, uh, on the local market for, for extra cash. Um, so, you know, this is these, these changing forms of remittances over time from material to financial are quite interesting because they do uh, shape the relationships with um, between the homeland and the diaspora. Um, and, you know, even things like the 2008 financial crisis, which led to Dodd-Frank uh, uh, regulations, um, shifted uh, the remittance channels that people accessed. Um, after Dodd-Frank, it became more difficult for some of the small ethnic service providers that were uh, sending remittances back, um, but also were doing a lot of kind of informal uh, uh, bookkeeping exchanges, sometimes called hawala, and where money is going both ways and uh, the money transfers through bookkeeping rather than actually being physically transferred. Uh, a lot of these things start to um, uh, be more difficult to do following Dodd-Frank. And so there's also been a formalization of the remittance market where people are increasingly starting to use formal channels such as the banks or Western Union. Um, and, you know, this an economy of kind of middlemen uh, who were also people that were in the community is also starting to, to fall away. So all these shifts are quite interesting to, to trace because it really shows how, you know, the channels and forms of remittances also have a, a very important effect on the kinds of relationships that are maintained um, between the homeland and the diaspora. So in chapter two, <clears throat> you focus on Vietnamese remittance recipients. And um, I'm going to quote you, you write on page 66, Vietnamese exiles and their money have become an affective specter for the nation, a phenomenon that has been observed in other countries with large diasporas, such as in the Philippines. As capitalist subjects and salary earners, diasporic subjects embody for many what Vietnamese can and should become, and in many imaginations could have become had South Vietnam and its allies won the Vietnamese Civil War. So what kinds of um, possibilities do diasporic Vietnamese hold for people in, in Vietnam? Um, and so like, like what could have they become? Um, and so, and why can't Vietnamese realize these, these possible selves um, where they are in, in Vietnam? So, yeah, I think you're tapping into something really important here. Um, you know, remittances also become an important uh, uh, <clears throat> mode of reflection on the possibilities of selves uh, depend, you know, based on where you, where you are in the global economy. And so there's this kind of awareness of the difference between one's opportunities in a core country like the United States versus a periphery, you know, a periphery country like Vietnam. Um, and remittances in many ways have become sources of critique uh, for the market reforms that, uh, that were introduced by the government um, starting in 1986. The Vietnamese government introduces a program called uh, Doi Mai, or Change for the New. Sometimes it's translated as Renovation. Um, and these 
market reforms have slowly transformed Vietnam's economy away from a socialist command economy to more of a market economy, um, mirroring what's happening uh, in China, where you have a one-party communist, one-party communist state, but with a seemingly free market economy. Um, in Vietnam, they call this a, a market economy with a socialist orientation. Um, but in reality, you know, many people in Vietnam experience uh, the economic opportunities that come along with that new renovation economy to be limited to urban areas and also limited to those with political connections. And so any families that have diasporic members overseas who left as refugees, they're likely to be people that are not well connected to the political establishment. The very fact that they had, uh, you know, relatives that were connected to the old regime means that they're probably excluded from opportunities uh, in today's market economy. And so um, <clears throat> economists have examined in Vietnam the difficulty that exists in moving from kind of the small to medium enterprise sector. Uh, if you go to Vietnam, there's lots of small market stalls everywhere that are um, you know, on every street, but to actually move into to make your business larger, there's a lot of obstacles uh, that exist if you don't have connections. Um, and also a lot of that market um, growth is based in, in a few cities like uh, Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi or Da Nang. Um, and so this leads to um, reflections on you know, what capitalism is. Uh, and capitalism in many ways becomes to be imagined as a system in which accumulation uh, or the idea that money begets money uh, is not really possible in Vietnam's crony capitalist economy. Uh, Vietnam seems to have the trappings of a market economy, but in reality, money for the people that are experiencing it through remittances, it's not turning into other forms of money. A lot of those remittances are used to open up a small coffee shop or a pool hall, but they really can't make it work into, you know, building uh, something larger. And therefore, you get these imaginaries of capitalism that are displaced onto, you know, core countries like the United States uh, or Germany, where it's imagined that you can start on the economic ladder by having a, a job like uh, working in a nail salon. This is a very common kind of uh, entry-level occupation for Vietnamese immigrants in the United States. Um, but that the money that you earn from that job can therefore be used to then build something more. In Vietnam, on the, on the other hand, money arrives, it's spent, but it doesn't seem to have any of those accumulative, cumulative possibilities that uh, people imagine it to have uh, in, the, in the U.S. So theories of globalization often focus on the movement of people, information, ideas, and money. And often it's the idea is that these flows are unfettered um, and they just circulate around. Um, yet you observe that money flows easier than bodies. And so you conducted fieldwork in a coastal town where um, the ocean's horizon seemed to represent more than just a natural body of water, but also a limit to and a possibility for escape. And moving and making a life abroad seems to represent social transformation, which many people can't achieve if they, if they can't leave. Um, so they can't achieve this social transformation. 
that mobility represents. Um, and so yet this physical immobility transforms them in ways that they may not have anticipated, such as opening up their imaginations to chance and frustration. Um, and so could you talk about, um, about this part of the book where you talk about the opening of the imagination to these other ideas? Yeah, so this whole history of migration and return remittances, I think, has really kind of opened up this uh, awareness um, of different possibilities. Um, again, going back to your last question of like the possibilities of self that exist in different places, and why do some people have the opportunity to transform their personhood through migration while others do not? Um, so, you know, you talked about theories of globalization, and, um, you know, Globalization is often defined as the kind of free movement of, uh, of money, goods, and services, but people aren't always necessarily a part of that equation. Uh, we tend to talk about migration as being something that's on the rise, and quantitatively that's true, but this is also because the world's population is, also, is on the rise. Um, so there's more people and there are therefore more migrants, but as, per, as a proportion of the world's population, International migration is actually relatively small and steady. Over the last 50 years, it's been about 3% of the global population. And when you compare that to cross-border foreign direct investment, um, there's a huge discrepancy. Cross-border FDI has grown from 6% uh, in 1980 to over 30% now. Um, and so money definitely flows more more freely than people in today's global economy. Um, and migrants, as well as migrant families that are left behind, feel this very acutely. So uh, during my time in, in, in Vietnam, I spent about a year and a half um, based in Ho Chi Minh City. I was a uh, visiting fellow at the Department of Anthropology at the Vietnam National, National University there. Uh, I you know, Ho Chi Minh City was a great place to look at remittances because um, half of remittances flow to Ho Chi Minh City. Ho Chi Minh City was the, the former capital of South Vietnam. So there's lots of uh, diasporic connections with refugees who left after the war. Uh, but Ho Chi Minh City is also a place where there's all kinds of other economic flows coming in. And so, you know, it becomes more difficult to differentiate how the effect of remittances as compared to other economic opportunities. Um, that are transforming that city. So I had the chance to um, to go to to a smaller city called Quy on the south central coast of Vietnam, um, and uh, when I was there, you really get to see um, the effects of remittances uh, more acutely. There's um, about sixty percent of the families in Quy have family members that live overseas. Um, and a lot of that is connected to a, a history of boat exodus where people who had access to fishing boats, and there's lots of fishing boats in this town because uh, it's a fishing community, people would uh, pay three gold bars, get on these boats, um, and they would try to make it to refugee camps uh, overseas, as I talked about. However, um, a lot of these journeys uh, failed. And I was really struck during my time there that it wasn't just a matter that some people left and went overseas and other people chose to stay behind, but that in fact, many, many people tried to go overseas and failed on multiple occasions. They would pay three gold bars, get on a boat. It would be caught by the police, turned back. Uh, and, and 
then they would try to save up money and get another three gold bars and try again. And some people had tried, you know, anywhere from two to 13 times uh, over the years. And so for many people who were unsuccessful ultimately in that attempt to migrate overseas during this period of time when, uh, when, you know, boat migration was the way to get out of Vietnam, there's a lot of frustration and disappointment um, in those experiences. Uh, there's really kind of a generation that, that went through that period of time where uh, boat migration was, was almost a, a rite of passage, especially for um, a lot of young men in that area. Um, but they continued to live, you know, literally on the edge of the nation state where they look at that ocean horizon each day. And so I was really struck, um, you know, in so many of the interviews that I, that I went on, uh, I would meet people in cafes that were by the ocean. Um, we'd drink coffee or if at night, you know, drink beer and people would literally gesture towards the horizon, talking about their overseas relatives and their own attempts to migrate over the years. And so there's this kind of, you know, kind of bodily um, relationship to the ocean and this gesturing to uh, what they call urban kia or over there, um, this kind of awareness that having made it to the other side, people had the opportunity to try out to really transform themselves and their bodies. Um, and yet those who stayed behind uh, have not been able, able to do that. Um, and so... You know, there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> I think, interesting ways in which that manifests itself uh, in, in um, culturally. Uh, in this area that I was working in, there was a lot of um, temples to a whale god that was a traditional deity um, followed by fishermen. And the idea of the whale god was that the whale um, is a deity that helps keep fishermen safe at sea in storms, and they also help fishermen get good catch. Uh, Queen Yun is currently transitioning to more of a tourist economy, um, as well as uh, um, in, in industrial development. And so a lot of the kind of fishing culture is going away. But at the same time, there's actually a revival of many of the temples. I would go around and I'd see these rebuilt temples uh, to the whale god. And so I started to ask, well, what's, you know, what's um, fueling these renovations? And people would tell me about um, the many former fishermen that had left as refugees uh, and were now sending money back to the whale god as an expression of gratitude for the fact that, you know, these boat journeys were very dangerous. Um, some estimates say that almost half of the people that tried to um, leave by boat uh, perished at sea. Uh, and so there's this idea of fate, you know, and that some people made it and some people, uh, did not, um, and quite tragically did not. But for those who made it, uh, they, they also send remittances back to support these whale god temples to express gratitude for having safely made these journeys. And so remittances, I think, take on quite interesting forms, uh, um, that you can see, you know, not only family to family remittances, but also remittances to, to charities, to uh, temples and other kind of collective forms um, in which these kinds of cultural expressions are, are quite interesting to observe. <clears throat> so while I was reading the book, I thought that U.S. and Vietnam kind of appear to be um, sort of distorted mirrors or different side of, sides of a coin 
where, and you've kind of mentioned this, the U.S. holds the promise of work and monetary accumulation. Um, some of your research participants, um, I think they called it easy money. Whereas in Vietnam, um, you know, they didn't have enough opportunities to earn money or money didn't accumulate. Um, but it also seemed like um, the people who received the remittances um, were alienated from the actual experiences of work in the United States, um, which partially then enables them to, in a way, romanticize work in the United States. And the remittance received seemed to yearn, the, yearn to reverse this relationship and migrate so that they could become remitters. Um, yet I could also imagine the senders possibly wanting the same kinds of um, the amounts of time, you know, that the recipients of the remittances have. Um, so I, I just kind of saw this sort of relationship of people looking both ways from Vietnam to the U.S. and U.S. to Vietnam. And so I was wondering, um, this question is about the remittance senders. Um, like, what were some of the sort of positive feelings they they got from sending remittances and then also like the pitfalls that they also expressed of, of having to continually send these remittances to their um, family back home. Yeah. So it was interesting to talk um, to, you know, people on both sides of the uh, remittance relationship. I mean, I started off with households that received remittances to understand um, how and why they received those remittances and the relationships that they maintained. Um, and then I started to branch out to remittance senders, starting with uh, <clears throat> diasporic Vietnamese who were coming back to Vietnam and return visits and would talk to me about um, uh, their experiences. And then after I finished my field work in Vietnam, I spent uh, half a year in California um, interviewing. California has the largest uh, Vietnamese diaspora um, in the world, especially in San Jose and Orange County areas. And I would talk to people about uh, their experience sending money back to their family. And uh, remittance senders certainly have a lot to complain about. Uh, they have arrived in the U.S., they've resettled in the U.S., but their experience of American, uh, the American economy and American society is not always that positive. And yet they have these obligations, these felt obligations to always demonstrate generosity to their family members who are left who are left behind because conditions are not as good there. Uh, and any kind of return trips to Vietnam come, come with the expectation of uh, bringing money. And so through these very acts of generosity, they also perpetuate the idea, um, you know, in Vietnam that it's worthwhile to migrate because, you know, look at the money that you can make. They're, really, they're literally demonstrating that with their uh, return remittances. Um, and so, you know, on the, on the recipient side, I was really struck by this sense of agency that people expressed, um, that they wanted to gain, uh, <clears throat> by sending remittances. Um, I talked to so many people and, you know, who wanted to, there was, a, there was a very strong correlation between receiving remittances and wanting to migrate. And when I would talk to people about, well, why do you want to migrate to, you know, say the United States, people would say, Sometimes, well, I want to migrate there so that I can send money back to Vietnam. Um, and so, you know, again, I mean, going back to your question about Vietnamese cultural notions of gifting, generosity is considered to be an important trait. And a lot of people feel that they can't adequately cultivate this trait in Vietnam. 
And I remember one person who said, you know, I want to go to America or actually he was talking about his, uh, his daughter. He said, I want my daughter to go to America because she can become a, a better Vietnamese in America than she can become here with all the uh, limited economic opportunities that existed in Vietnam. So, you know, in general, uh, I think a lot of people um, have this idea that by going to the U.S., they'll have opportunities to kind of uh, um, cultivate their personhood through economic opportunities, but also kind of being able to express uh, and demonstrate their their generosity through remittances to relatives and and and, and broader communities. Um, I've met very few people who said they want to go back to Vietnam to receive remittances. Uh, there's a lot of people that wanted to have a transnational lifestyle where they could go back and forth between uh, the U.S. and Vietnam and be able to you know, bring that capital earned in the U.S. back to Vietnam to try to uh, distribute to family or to perhaps open up a small business venture, uh, but always kind of taking advantage of the fact that they had um, that, you know, feet in more than one locale. Uh, some of the older generation um, did express desires to go back to Vietnam, and I met some interesting, you know, there's some retirement advisors that actually advise <clears throat> older Vietnamese on how to um, save up enough money so that they can live off the interest of their uh, savings as well as add that to Social Security to then be able to afford to retire uh, in Vietnam. Um, but uh, it's it's oftentimes the older generation that really, you know, are the ones that would express any desire to go back and permanently resettle there. Um, but, I mean, I think there's this kind of widespread uh, frustration that uh, remittance senders express that no matter what they give or how much they give, it's never enough. Um, and this is kind of an ongoing dilemma. It never seems to be enough. It's never appreciated. People always demand more. And, you know, my economic circumstances in America are not that good. I have nuclear family obligations that um, are more important here. And, you know, in Vietnam, I'm, I'm connected to an, an, an entire extended kinship network that, I, that expects me to, to support them. Um, and so people are constantly expressing frustrations about this. Yet, I think what's most interesting is that people rarely stop giving. Despite the frustrations, the giving continues, and there's this kind of hopeful horizon of giving that eventually giving can help to pe- to make people's lives better so that they don't need to receive those remittances, and that, gift- and that giving can eventually truly become a gift in which it's doing its job in order to, you know, kind of restore uh, uh, and maintain kinship relations in a way that, you know, would have been maintained in a more traditional setting had the refugee exodus never happened. <clears throat> um, so we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we end, um, can you tell us what you're working on next or what projects you have um, on the horizon? So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. I've got a sabbatical leave next year. Um, and so I've been working on two projects. Uh, one is, um, finishing up a, a project on looking at transportation shifts in Vietnam, uh, in particular uh, driven by changing market conditions in the ASEAN free trade area. And 
I started doing this project um, because I was interested in uh, how people would often talk about spending remittances on motorcycles. That was one of the few areas where people, you know, always say, oh, this is an area of spending um, where remittances have been really helpful. Motorcycles, uh, if you ever go to Vietnam, it's one of the largest motorcycle markets in the world. There's motorbikes everywhere. And uh, motorcycles have really been important in, you know, creating certain economic mobilities and connections to markets, but also increasingly uh, with the capitalist economy, they become uh, forms of, um, you know, niche identity formations uh, by connecting to the you know, types and brands of motorcycles that people are buying. Um, and so uh, there's a shift now to, to car ownership. Um, and this is driven by the ASEAN free trade area where tariffs are being lowered on cars. And so this is connected to then a shift in uh, um, people starting to um, think about real estate that in which cars are central. So people are, you know, moving to more suburban areas of cities, they're buying houses that can store those cars and then connecting to kind of new multimodal transportation networks where the car is, is being used in conjunction with the new uh, infrastructure for subways and, uh, and ride sharing and things like that. And so I've been looking at this both from uh, the bottom up, uh, following, for example, motorcycle drivers who are taking auto driving classes um, in anticipation of owning a car, but also from the top down, looking at some, at some of these car companies themselves that are conceptualizing cultural ideas of mobility across different Southeast Asian markets in order to gain um, market entry advantages. Uh, so that's one project. Um, and I'll be based in Singapore for <clears throat> uh, part of my time to, to finish that project. And so my other main project is looking at what I call Southeast Asian ethnomobilities. Um, and here I'm kind of bringing together these different themes I've been researching over the years um, and looking at how transportation, remittances, and migration uh, come together to create uh, new forms of diasporic communities and linkages. Um, and so one of the things I'm looking at here uh, is reverse remittances. And so, I've, you know, instead of looking only at remittance flows from the U.S. into Vietnam. I'm also looking at capital flows out of Vietnam. Um, and there's a lot of interest by, you know, there's a lot of wealth in Vietnam's economy now and a lot of interest in getting some of that, the, that money out of uh, the country. Um, and so you have structural opportunities to do that through um, EB-5 investment visas in the United States where you can um, uh, invest money in a project uh, in the U.S. and create a certain, certain number of jobs uh, that leads, creates a pathway to um, a green card. Uh, and so, you know, these reverse remittances are also having an important role in um, developing uh, new suburban community formations in the U.S., um, not just places like California, but also new cities in the South, especially like Houston and Atlanta. Um, and especially in the South, there's uh kind of a, a material visibility to these as land is cheaper and people are, you know, really trying to um, kind of mark their communities through their building of large shopping malls and large temples and churches um, that are quite, quite visible. Uh, so, um, you know, 
I'm, this will be a project that takes me transnationally, both to Vietnam, but also to uh, um, some of these locales, uh, especially in Houston, Atlanta, um, over the over the next couple of years. Thank you. So Ivan Small is the author of Currencies of Imagination, Channeling Money and Chasing Mobility in Vietnam. Thank you for writing this book and for talking about it with us today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.